You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys episode number 59 for Monday the 17th of April 2017, Easter Monday. Now, my guest today is Adam Croft, a British author, principally of crime fiction, but also of psychological thrillers, and best known for the Kempson Hardwick mysteries and his Knight and Culverhouse thrillers. In 2015, her last tomorrow quickly became one of the biggest selling self-published books of the year. His work has won him critical acclaim, as well as four Amazon bestsellers, with his Kempson Hardwick mysteries being adapted into audio plays starring some of the biggest names in British TV. I've been really keen to dig into Adam's self-publishing journey for some time, so it was great to be able to speak to him. And when we caught up for the podcast, I asked him what got him writing in the first place. I think 2008, I started writing the first one. I'd I'd been on holiday um, with my my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and I'd been reading a lot of books and I had some ideas pop into my head. And I, when I got home, I, I started writing. I'd never really written anything properly before, not really since school or messing around. I had no idea of craft or anything like that. Didn't know what I was going to do with it. And in the end, it took me about two and a half years of doing little bits here and there. And by the time I got back to it, and at that point, I had about 22,000 words in two and a half years, which isn't really great going. <laughs> did, you, did you have an aspiration then? Were you, were you, had you just leapt and just waiting to see where you fell? Or, or did you have an aspiration to actually publish it? Kind of a, a bit of both. I'd always, you know, writing is something I'd always wanted to do. Um, always been quite creatively minded. But when I wrote this and, and finally finished it, the, the, the very first one, that is, I'd, um, I didn't really know what to do with it. No, I, I realised it, it probably wasn't of uh, professionally publishable quality in terms of uh, the traditional sense. But, um, yeah, I'd only found out about Kindle and KDP um, a couple of months before, and this is the back end of 2010, so it was all very new then. Yeah, it was a very um, different landscape, wasn't it, at, at that time? Oh, completely, yeah. I mean, it, it finally went live, I think, in the first couple of days of 2011, and uh, within a few weeks it had really taken off, and it ended up being... Um, store-wide number one free book on on Amazon for a, for a little while, and that was really what kind of piqued my interest and made me realise what was possible. Seeing how many people were downloading this book, I mean, it, it didn't make me any money because it was a freebie, but just seeing the potential there and how much interest it was getting was what kind of made me think that potentially there could be something bigger here. And that's when I started looking into marketing and, and all sorts of things and spent the next five or six years working out how to build a career out of it. I've talked to quite a lot of authors on this podcast now. And when people talk about 2010, which well, I guess it's seven years ago, that's, that's an age yeah. isn't it, in internet terms. Yeah. Um, but people seem to be able to launch, um, and I, you know this is not an insult, but they seem to be able to launch pretty well anything then. And it seemed to find an audience. Was, was it that different in those days? It was very, very different. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure we do kind of blow it out of proportion, but compared to today, it was it was very, very easy compared to how how it is at the moment. Um, there was a lot less out there. There were far fewer people doing it. Um, I mean, I was pretty digitally savvy. I'd um, 
I'd been running an internet marketing company at that point, and even I wasn't really aware of uh, sort of self-publishing and, and a potential there of publishing yourself through Amazon. Um, but yeah, it, it was easier. I wouldn't say it was just a case of you know you could publish whatever you want and it would be popular, but it was um, it was certainly a lot easier than it is now. And what sort of process had you put that first book through? Had you done all the the getting the proper cover, getting the the proofread and the the, the edit? Had you done that first time around? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, to be quite honest, I wasn't expecting anyone to read it. All I really wanted was for just one person who I didn't know to pick it up at random and let me know what they thought. So I could see if there might be some kind of future in this. Uh, certainly hadn't expected it to go as mad as it did. And um, no, I, I, I did absolutely no editing whatsoever. It's full of errors, um, which were subsequently tidied up. Uh, the original cover was one that I knocked together myself in Photoshop in the old... Um, age-old tradition of just nicking a picture off the internet and putting my name and a book title <laughs> on, superimposed on top. Um, but then again, you know, it was all so young then, The not just me, the, the industry. It was, um, you know, that's what a lot of people did. And, of course, that's the, you know, the view that a lot of people have these days of self-publishing. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it just didn't – it wasn't a mature industry that had this kind of – focus that you had to get your own editor you had to get your own cover designer you had to go through this process and that was something that i built up since then and that's part of that business mindset that i've uh, really tried to develop with my books so it sounds like from that first book then it was almost like a, a test a sandbox um case scenario and and you sort of thought all right we've got something to play with here where, where did you mm -hmm. take it from that point then well, it was far less deliberate, really. I wasn't kind of setting out to test. Uh, I didn't know what I was testing either. It's just a case of seeing what happened, really. Um, I very quickly realized that what I would need to do is write another book and that one wasn't going to sustain me, certainly not one that was free. So um, I wrote a second book in the series. Um, that was in, I think that came out June of the same year so i got that done quite quickly i didn't really know where i was going with that either it was just a case of trying to get more readers in trying to generate a bit of money from it you mentioned series there so were you, you mm. were writing in a series from from day one um well kind of i'd left the end of the book not open but i hadn't you know ended everything and you know to the point where i couldn't write more in a series i always had a a view that I could carry on the characters and could carry on the series if I wanted to. So I suppose there was a little bit of forethought there. Um, didn't completely close everything off. And how do the series then work? Which one Which one was this, by the way? Was this the Kemps and Hardwicks or the, the Knight and Culverhouses by this time? Yeah, uh, this was the Knight and Culverhouse one. Yeah, the first book was Too Close for Comfort. The second one was Guilty of Sin. Um, so, yeah, I'd, 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 so, yeah, I had left it open-ended, I guess, in terms of a series progression, yeah. So with that second book then, what did you learn from your first experience? Were, were you then aware of the need to be getting covers and proofreaders and, and getting the quality up? Not at that stage, no. <laughs> it still <laughs> so, took me a little while to cotton on, a little while longer to cotton on. Um, I had uh, some friends and family read through it and offer some suggestions, um, ignored most of them because I, I was uh, far less wise then. Um, again, the cover was um, was one that I'd put together myself. I, I had still hadn't um, really realised the importance of doing it properly. I mean, uh, my excuses were the same ones that I hear from a lot of people now. You know, I haven't got the time to sort it all out. I don't know any designers. Uh, I haven't got any money. Isn't that expensive? Um, and, and the answers are yes, it is expensive, but it's also absolutely vital. You can't just um, 
you know, you can't just do it yourself. You wouldn't open a shop on the high street and, you know, get a black marker pen out to write the sign on the front of your shop. You would get a, a sign writing company to do it. It's all about the image that you're trying to put across. And you want people to think that you're a professional writer and you are, if you're trying to make money out of it by, by definition, you're professional and you've got to act professionally with it. And like any business, you have to make investments. What were your expectations of that second book? I know that the first one had done really well for free. Mm. Presumably mm. you were hoping to start squeezing some cash out of this. Yeah, yeah, just just something really to try and make it pay its way. Um, I mean, I was kind of uh, realistic in the sense that I knew by then it wasn't just going to be a case of put a book out, make a load of money and, and everything will be rosy. I knew it was going to have to be a long-term thing. And I was starting to realise that it was all a case of building things up from the ground, really. So I think expectations were fairly low. Um, and, yeah, they were they were certainly met <laughs> at that level <laughs> for the first few years. OK, what sort of length were you writing at at that stage? Because the first one was quite short, wasn't it? I mean, would you I think it, is it novella at that stage? Was it a novella or is it just slightly above? Yeah, I mean, it's all a bit um, all a bit fluid, really. There are different definitions, but I mean, generally accepted is anything above kind of 40,000, 50,000 would be a novel. Below that is a is novella, and I think below sort of 10,000 words would be a short story. Um, so, yeah, th- th- there were all novellas really up until about my fourth or fifth book, I think. Um, my, you know, my writing style is generally shorter, and it is snappier. Um, I do... I do get to the point. I don't tend to fill things out with too much waffle. I mean, as the series have gone on, the worlds have got bigger, if you like, and I know the characters more, things happen, there are more threads that go throughout the series which need either tying off or developing. So they have naturally got longer. Um, and my series books now are generally around kind of fifty-five to 60,000, and my standalone psychological thrillers tend to be a bit longer. They tend to be um, around sort of seventy to 80,000. I was reading an article, and I will come back to it several times, actually, uh, you know, during the interview, because there's some really good stuff in there. But one of the things I noticed that you'd said in this article was forget creative writing courses. You know, don't don't mm-hmm. go to these courses. So, so how did you begin to to develop your craft and actually be aware that there was even a craft required for this job? Um, well, I think that there are things that can be learned, but sometimes um, some courses and, and, and what have you do tend to be a little bit prescriptive. And the thing with writing is you've got to find your own voice and you've got to find your own way of doing it. Um, that doesn't mean you can just go and be completely avant-garde and, and, and do what you like and expect it to work. There are certain um, conventions of story and certain conventions of craft that should be stuck to, I'll say, rather than must be stuck to. Um, but I think even if you're going to break the rules, you've got to know what the rules are first before you go and break them. You've got to know what the conventions are. And I'm I'm constantly reading up on on the craft of story and story structure. I'm, I'm looking at one of my bookcases now, and it's just crammed full with, I think, practically every book that's been written on the subject. And it's something that, that always really fascinates me. And did, did you pick that up on your radar for fairly early on, you know, within those first two books that you would have to keep working at that? Yeah, I mean, thinking back, I think I had read at least one um, book on kind of how to write books, if you like. Um, I think fairly early on, within the f- writing the first couple of uh, first couple of books, um, but it wasn't something that I took seriously for much longer. And I think that's I think that's really when things changed for me was when I started to take it more seriously and realised that I had to run this. Uh, as a business, really. And at, at first, yes, I would be spending money on things and it, it would be costing me um, 
to lay those foundations for the future. But it, this is a long-term thing. It's not a case of, you know, write a book and it will be successful. You've got to be thinking, you know, not just a year ahead. A, a year really is short-term in this, in this industry in, in terms of planning ahead. You've got to be thinking 5, 10, 15 years in front of you. And it took you quite a long time. Well, it took you a very long time to write that first book. How what, Did mm. you pick your speed up? Pretty quickly once you'd written that first one. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have much choice, really, <laughs> uh, and started to get the hang of it as well. And certainly once I saw the potential and started to see some results coming in, that was quite encouraging for me. I'm thinking, you know, logical maths brain is if one book is doing X amount of money, then three or four books should be doing three or four X. So it was just logical for me in order to try and build things up and, and develop that career to, to keep writing. And I think that's something that helped not just from a business point of view, but from a writing point of view, the more you write, the better writer you will be. Now, how much kind of money were you making at that stage? We've gone from, from nothing. I mean, were we, you were talking sort of tens or, or hundreds, how quick until it started to become interesting rather than just pleasant pocket money? Um, to be honest, I don't remember the specifics, but, it was interesting when, when the first penny rolled in. That's when you start to see the potential and see that it can earn some money. Um, I mean, to be honest, for quite a long time, it was doing not brilliantly. I mean, it was it was covering the bills. Um, my wife was working full time and I was doing this at first alongside other things um, and then started to do it um, sort of approaching full time. But it wasn't really... Um, my sole method of income until towards the end of 2015 that was when i i was doing you know nothing else on the side i mean up until then i've been doing the odd talks here and there i've been uh, writing web articles and and things and an advert copy for for companies so it was all kind of connected but in terms of my sole income being book royalties that wasn't until about late 2015 in terms of your employment, you said you were very internet savvy. Were you um, mm. were you self-employed uh, or were you employed by somebody else? Yeah, I've been self-employed since 2007. So, yeah, quite a long time, really. I was, I was 20 at the time. <laughs> so, yeah, I've always always been entrepreneurial, I think. And that's I think that's what's helped with with the writing career, funnily enough. Not not so much the sort of the internet marketing background and what have you, but just knowing that, um, you know, things have to turn a profit. And also knowing that you know, profit's not instantaneous. It's you, You've got to lay those foundations early on and you've got to put some investment in and do things professionally. I'd like to dig into that a little more, if I may, because this entrepreneurial mindset, I think, is pretty important for self-publishers. Yeah. And many people who come to self-publishing are of an employee mindset. So they're thinking yeah. in terms of replacing a salary, whereas as somebody who is self-employed, you could probably transition. As you said, you could turn one tap off and turn the author tap on a little bit harder as, as you start to increase the income. Do you think, do you think that mindset does make it easier? Yeah, well, not not only that, it's absolutely vital. If you want to self-publish, you will have to run it as a business. There, is, there are no two ways about it, because otherwise it's not going to make any money, because nobody else is going to be doing the marketing for you. Nobody else is going to be making sure the figures add up. You've got to be on the ball with that. There are no two ways about it. Um, if you're not interested in in running a business alongside writing, then the traditional option is still there. Um, but all I will say is that you will have to do quite a bit of the work yourself in that uh, in that arena as well that's not um it's not so much how it used to be and it was just write a book send it off and they'll do the rest you know there are expectations in, in the traditional side of the industry as well that you know you have to get involved in your own marketing you have to have quite a bit of input into things um but yeah if you're looking to self-publish or do things independently then it's 
there, there are no two ways about it. As I said, it's absolutely vital that you've got to run a business as well. The thing about uh, writing books, though, is that um, when you write your first book, for instance, if you're going to get a proper cover, an editor and a proofreader, you're probably in for about a thousand to a thousand and a half pounds before mm. you even launch. And, and that is a block for many people. I know I often say to people, well, if you're opening a restaurant, you've got considerable costs mm. um, you know, and you're really in for rates and wages and all sorts of things. Where, where, where do you sit on the fence with, with that one? Because you can't really make an omelette without cracking some eggs, can you? No, but with with any other with any other business, you would have one option, and that is to invest that money. Like you said, if you if you're opening any business, even if you're just washing cars, you've got to buy buckets and sponges and pressure washers and what have you. The simplest of business will involve some kind of setup cost, um, and with writing, you have got two options. In fact, you've got either suck it up and deal with it, or you've got go traditional. And let somebody else do it, and somebody else will put that money in. Somebody else will design those covers. The, the publisher will hire editors for you, and in return, you'll get a very small amount of money for the books that you sell, which may not be all that many. Of course, if you're doing it yourself, you've got that control more or less over how many you sell, depending on how much effort you put in and how wise you are with the marketing. But th- this idea that you can just come in and you can write a book, um, put absolutely no money in whatsoever and just expect readers to part with their money when you're not willing to, you know, you're not willing to back yourself up, uh, I think is um, is really unwise. And it's it's no surprise that there isn't a single person who's been successful doing things that way. Now, you mentioned the T word, traditional, there. Yeah. Uh, did you, in your early days, was the aspiration ever to be traditionally published, or were you always full in with indie? Um, I don't think I really had any aspirations at the start, if I'm quite honest with you, other than being a successful writer. I, I knew nothing about the industry whatsoever, but obviously I knew that the traditional way of doing things was to send something in through an agent or directly to a publisher. And at first I thought that was the only option there until I'd uh, discovered Kindle. But yeah, as soon as I put it there, and as soon as I'd seen that early success, there were there were no two ways about it for me. I was I was going to I was going to be independent. Um, of course, I, I was hybrid for a while, and I do have two books now that are, are with Thomas and Mercer through Amazon. But their model is is certainly closer towards the independent end of the market for me. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I still call myself an independent author, certainly. Did you always go wide um, going on iBooks and, and Nook and Kobo? Have you always been, again, a, a Kindle man? Um, I think, if I remember rightly, I was wide at first in the early days, and I I did then end up going Kindle and went into KDP Select and all of the rest of it. But um, there are there are some upsides and a lot of downsides to to exclusivity. I mean, it's not something I would ever 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 do again. Um, you know, it's, it's important to me now that my books are available to everybody, especially seeing as Amazon, you know, accounts for um, an, an an increasingly small, if that makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> a, de- a decreasing um, amount of, of income. The, the other uh, distributors really are growing. So for me, I, I wouldn't be wide again. No, uh, Sorry, I wouldn't be exclusive again. I would always keep my books wide now. And, and what sort of numbers were you selling on, on the other outlets? Because I think this is one of the things that puts people off, isn't it? That um, you know, you, often you only sell a handful on, on the mm. other outlets. Maybe, maybe Nook's quite good, I think, for box sets. Uh, and some people seem to soar away on iBooks, but nothing really seems to take otherwise. No, my, my sales were, were low, were pitiful for a long time, and that's why I ended up going into KDP Select. 
Um, but I, I then went wide when a lot of people were asking me about having the books available on other platforms when my name started to get out a bit more and there's some word of mouth stuff going on. People were asking me to to have books available elsewhere, so I tried it. And yeah, again, for, for a while it was absolutely pitiful, but that's because I was doing nothing about it. Um, I was very much in that mindset that I see a lot of people in, which is to blame everyone else but themselves. And once I started to realize that I could do something about this and I needed to do something about it, I got in touch with the distributors. I said to them, look, how do I sell more books on your platform? Because at the end of the day, they want you to sell more books as well. They're not losing out. If if you suddenly start shifting 10 times as many books as you were, they're making money as well out of this. So they want you to sell books and they're only too happy to help you out. Um, So I developed contacts at Kobo. I developed contacts at iBooks. I developed contacts at Nook. And, you know, together we, we sat down, we had a look at things and, and worked out how we could promote these books. And now they're every day they're they're in promotions on one of those retailers. There's always promotions going on at Kobo, at iBooks. Um, I think at the moment on the iBooks um, homepage somewhere, there's a, you know, one of my books is, is featured at the moment because you know, I asked them to do it. It's, um, you know, I think a lot of people do tend to put these kind of hurdles in their own way. Um, but if you get out there and if you be proactive and if you talk to people um, in this industry, most people are only too happy to help, especially if they're making some money out of it as well. And was that the case, though, in the early days when you weren't shifting no. so many books? No, no, it wasn't. That's only a fairly recent thing, to be honest, within the last um, probably last year, two years, actually, that I've I've really started to push those those smaller vendors. Um, and it's, it's it's been quite good timing, actually, because I think a lot of people are starting to see Amazon sales dropping slightly, whether that's because, you know, sales generally are dropping there or because there's more competition or, you know, things have plateaued there. I don't know. But, um, yeah, for me, it's it's been good because I've been able to not only supplement that, that slight decrease over Amazon, but I've been able to see you know, even bigger increases on the other vendors. So there are... Quite, quite often, most months, there are a good handful of days where Amazon is not my number one source of income and Kobo or iBooks quite often overtakes them. Mm, that's very interesting. Uh, um, one of the, the points of this uh, particular podcast is that although obviously we're going to celebrate your successes later on, I do like to dig into the journey. I like to know about yeah. the, the difficulties along the way because I think there is sometimes, you know, with somebody like yourself where you're all over the press at the moment, um, there's this this glossing over almost of the path that you had to take to get where you've got to. Like, Tell me about it. Like it doesn't like it doesn't matter. You know, like you didn't do yeah. any work to get there. And I and yeah. I know any author knows that you've done a lot of work to get where you are. And so can we dig into that a little bit? And I, I I'd like to know, you know, what were the disappointments you felt along the way? When did you feel, you know, down, maybe like giving it up and, and just disappointed with the whole thing? Uh constantly. And it, even still now, sometimes I, I have this mindset where I wake up and I expect everything to have just disappeared overnight and for, for that to be it, which is really why I'm enjoying it while, you know, while it's happening at the moment. Um, but yeah, you're right. People do, do tend to forget everything that went on before or, or just don't know about it. I get a lot of people who read Her Last Tomorrow, which was the book that changed everything, um, saying to me, oh, I love this book. When's your second one out? How <laughs> insulting <laughs> <To> which, is that? <laughs> yeah, to, well, to which my response is five years ago. This, is, this, this was my ninth book. Um, so, so, yeah, it does, um, it does surprise me sometimes. But then again, I, you know, I, I get it. I get that with newspapers and magazines and what have you, there, there, are, you know, there has to be a headline. And, um, you know, man sees modest success after seven years of trying and nine books isn't really a headline. But, um, you know, making out that it's an overnight 
you know, some kind of overnight sensation, and the, I, I wrote one book and it and it took off. Of course, you know, there's there's, there's romance in the headlines there. There's, there's no romance in in seven years of hard work. So I get that. Um, but yeah, the, the disappointments, to be honest, are are continuous. I mean, it's about a downer on things, but there are always going to be disappointments. It's it's the way it is. There are always going to be books that don't do as well as you think. Um, there are always going to be you know re- negative reviews coming through. For example, I I learned you know quite a, a good amount of time ago not to not to read the reviews people do sometimes still make me aware of them but i i'm getting a lot better now at ignoring those um and I, I just i you know within the last couple of months i just stopped looking altogether um but you know there are always going to be things that that pop up it's it's one of those industries where you you put your heart and soul into things and you you spend a lot of time on a book and sometimes things don't add up but that's that's the way it is you know you've got, you've got to pick yourself up and get on with the next one and were there times when you thought about throwing the towel in and walking away from it um no not as such um i think that's just because i'm a really stubborn person mm. um so i've never really thought about not doing it but yeah you always question why you do it you always think well is this going to take off at some point and I'd always hoped that it would, and I always knew that there would be a tipping point there somewhere. Um, but I was also acutely aware at all times that if it didn't take off, and the reason why it hadn't been taken off at that point was that it was um, down to me. And it's down to the effort that perhaps I, I wasn't putting in or that I wasn't putting it into the right areas. Um, so, yeah, I mean, any any time things haven't gone quite right or have been slightly disappointing, I've... Um, you know, I've realised that perhaps my my focus has has been in the wrong place, and I should have been focusing it elsewhere. Um, and that, you know, sometimes decisions I've made hadn't been right, which is which is fine. That's business. That's life. Um, you know, we all make mistakes. We all make wrong decisions. But um, you know, as long as you can make the right decision next time, that's the main thing. And how did you feel about your writing? Have you always felt happy and and good about what you're sending out into the world? Yes and no. Um, my general rule is that I won't put a book out unless I think it's better than the one previously. Um, and I've, I've got a small team of people who, who read my books before they get released, um, you know, to make sure that it's, you know, I haven't made any daft mistakes. And that just in general, that it is going to be better than, than, than the previous one, because I want to keep getting better. I want to keep improving as a writer. I want to keep improving how many books I'm selling and, you know, the, the sales rankings that I'm hitting. So, yeah, for me, that, you know, consistent increase in quality is what's important. And I think rather than putting a good, uh, sorry, a bad book out, I think what I'm most scared of is is writing the perfect book. Uh, sorry, the perfect book. Um, because there's just nowhere to go from there. And you know, the thought of starting to slip backwards was, is what would scare me the most. Okay, then. So uh, when did you start to get people like uh, proofreaders and editors involved do you do things like structure edits you do the whole thing yeah yeah it's um it's a bit more of a kind of a fluid process it certainly was earlier on um as i said from that second book onwards i had started to get friends and family involved and and looking through things um but it wasn't until again i did things completely the the wrong way around i'd waited until it started earning some money before i started putting my own money in um so yeah it's probably about four or five books in before i was paying for you know for structural edits and for proofreaders and things like that 
Um, and even then, you know, some of those books were, were making a net loss. But, you know, it's all, as I said, it's all about the long term. It's all about looking further forward. And I knew that one book would tip things over. But, you know, if, if that ninth book had been my first, then I would have had nowhere else for the readers to go. They wouldn't have had a back catalogue of books to go through. So, you know, you will earn more money the more books you write, even if what each book only earns a small amount of money times that by 20 books and you're starting to see a, a, a much more significant income so you were running at net loss for quite some time you, you obviously you got book income but by the time you'd, you'd paid for all the bits and pieces that you have to it was showing a net loss in, in the in the writing business yeah i mean i mean there are ways to mitigate that um you know what a lot of people do certainly on the editing front is you'll find that a number of your readers may well have been professional editors or or, or professional proofreaders there are you know, for example, I've got some like twenty five odd thousand people on my mailing list. There are all sorts of um, employment backgrounds there, so there's no harm in just asking. And you'll often find you might get a better deal by going to somebody who's already on your mailing list and is, is perhaps willing to to cut you a bit of a deal. Especially, quite often they'll do a, a better job because they genuinely love your books as well. They're not doing it just as a a professional thing. Um, and even on the cover design side of things, if you've got a very strong brand. And if your books, for example, are in one series that is quite heavily branded, it's very similar style. You can see straight away from looking at it what series it is. You know, the, the font stays the same, perhaps the colors stay the same, what have you. Um, even design costs there can be cut down because it's not a case of designing an entire new book cover each time. If you've, if you've got that branding um, and it's just a case of, you know, some imagery changing or what have you, then that can cut costs too. So I think really just making sure you've got a system in place for each book and you know where you're going and you know where your series is going as well. You can plan ahead quite effectively. When did you um, switch from the original series? When did you start to throw or start to, you know, juggle another ball, so to speak? Um, the the first year, actually, 2011, of the, the year the first one was published, in December I put out the first Kempston Hardwick book, um, which there was something I'd wanted to do for a while. I had an idea for this series, which is essentially um, a tongue-in-cheek look at the, the golden age of, of detective fiction, your, your Agatha Christie-style things, but um, you know, with, with a very tongue-in-cheek and kind of comedic look at things. So it doesn't take itself too seriously at all. It, um, you know, it's it's a, very much a nod to the traditional. And uh, yeah, that was yeah, back in the 2011, I put the first one out. Um, and I love that series. I think it's, um, I think it's quirky. I think it's fun. Um, it's got a, a very dedicated readership, but a much smaller readership because of the, the niche that it's in. Um, so I wrote four of those books before I actually went back to the Night and Culverhouse ones. Again, I was completely ignoring the fact that the readership were quite clearly saying to me, we want this series. And I was thinking, no, but I like this one. Um, and again, going with, with what I wanted rather than thinking kind of sensibly and commercially about it. Yeah, there's there's a lesson in that, isn't there? They call it low hanging fruit, I think, don't they? In the in corporate yeah. terms, go for the low hanging fruit. Yeah, and just go for what people want and and what your readers want. And there's no harm in asking them. Just send them an email and ask them what they what they like. Um, you know, I survey my readers each year as well, and that's that's quite in depth about the series that they've read, the series they haven't, perhaps why they haven't read the other series, what they like about them, um, and trying to find out a bit more about them as well because. Again, it's all it's all about looking at the long term, planning ahead what I'm going to write, um, and 
it, it's a it's a two way thing. It's not a case of whatever I put out, people will read and people will buy. Um, you know, there there are a lot of authors out there and a lot of books out there, and people aren't aren't loyal to you, you know, just because they're loyal to you. They're loyal to you because they like your books, and for that loyalty to continue, they have to continue to like your books. You mentioned uh, a little earlier on that you've got a, a twenty five thousand k mailing list now. Mm. Um, you're internet savvy, so at what point did you start to build your list? Um, not early enough, and I don't think you can do it early enough either. To be honest, it, it is the most important um, aspect of, of being a, uh, an independently published author is having that mailing list, because otherwise you, you've, you've got nothing to fall back on if. If you're only marketing each book through Amazon, I mean, for example, your say your your first book does very well, you then write your second book. How are you going to market it to the people who bought that first one? They're not going to find out otherwise. You've got to get them on your mailing list as a way of being able to let them know. It's it's a free marketing tool almost, you know, until you get to having a lot more people on your list and having to pay for it. But even then, it's still the cheapest and most effective marketing tool. Um. I really came quite late to the party, certainly in terms of building it. I had a list quite early on, um, but it was just kind of, it was on mentioned on my website. It was, if you want to find out more about my books, click here to get my newsletter. And you think, well, who's, who's going to do that? It's, um, there was no incentive for people to sign up. And I, I hadn't really thought in a smart way about what, you know, what, what is essentially a newsletter, but which is, um, what became my VIP club. And yeah, I, I read a few books on certainly from doing it from an author's point of view. And Nick Stevenson's books were, were fantastic on that in terms of building your mailing list. And Mark Dawson is, um, is a big advocate of it now as well. And just reading and finding out what those guys had to say about it and how the mailing list can be so effective is what really made me think about how to get people on there and how to drive people towards that and even using facebook ads and things for for building the mailing lists um i didn't start doing that until kind of mid 2015 what were you using to capture the emails is it you've got a particular tool that you get on well with um it was i think it's just a mailchimp plugin for for wordpress was what i was using um and i use a modified version of that now because I, I still do everything through mailchimp um and my website is in wordpress so yeah i have um forms on the website and there are hidden ones as well there are landing pages that people come into from, from various um sort of advertising media um and lead gen adverts on facebook as well have um yeah, have historically not been great, but are a lot, lot better now, especially if you, um, you, know, if you tweak them and play with them. So, yeah, there's, there's a few ways of getting people on there, and I, I segment the list as well, so I know where people have come from. I know which campaigns are working. I know that, you know, people who come from certain sources are more likely to go on and buy books, and people who come from certain sources are more likely to just want the freebies. Um, so, yeah, it's it's something I'm always looking at, and for me that is – by far and away the most important marketing tool and probably the most important business tool in general. If you could give us, uh, can you give me a rough indication of where your list was, say, prior to the the explosion in awareness of your books and, and getting to that 25,000? Were you kind of in the hundreds, thousands at that stage? Um, well, very low, I think. Um, I, I'd, yeah, I'd be amazed if it was in the four figures. I mean, I've, I've got my MailChimp account open now. I can probably... Um, probably have a look and see, but uh, yeah, I'm fairly sure it was, it was really very low. Um, and I'd only got people on there from, you know, from 
just having read the books and seen something in the back that that mentioned that I I had a mailing list. So, I mean, looking here in March 2016, which was about three months after Her Last Tomorrow came out, I had 4,000. And the the book was huge at that point, and I only had 4,000. So that 20-odd thousand joined in the last year, really. Well, that, you see, that's just really good to know. I think for other authors yeah. who are who are struggling, it's really good to get a feel of the numbers and, and you know where you were and how long this takes. Which is why I'm so interested in, in the journey. You know, to get to the point of success, everybody's got there in different ways, and uh, it's just fascinating to hear about it. What What about your writing day? As you kind of got into the swing of writing, as you moved from that first book, I think the first book's probably always the the biggest discovery. When when you started getting into a routine of it, what what did a writing day look like for you? Were you writing to quotas? Did you use software for it? How how did you do it? Um, Well, in terms of when I actually do the writing, that that does change. But I try and do something um, every day if I can. Normally, I try and get a minimum of two or 3,000 words a day done. Um, Sometimes that doesn't happen. I tend to do it in chunks. Once I've got a book planned, um, and I plan very, very heavily. I always start with a, a synopsis, perhaps one or two lines. I build that out. I then create my beats, um, uh, which become chapters in, in Scrivener. Um, and then when I sit down to write the book, I always know exactly where I'm going. I know what I'm writing that day because I've got a little sort of virtual cue card there that tells me. Um, and the, the actual time of day that I write does differ. I tend to find that first thing in the morning, a lot of people always say it's great for writing. I've always found I'm far too brain dead to do anything but but check my emails and I normally have a look at the previous day's stats, perhaps have a look at my adverts and things, see how things are stacking up. Um, and that can give me a bit of a boost as well. So I think, yes, you know, I had another day where, where my career didn't end. Let's try and make today the same. <laughs> so at that point, I might start with the writing. Um, you see, yeah, somewhere around the middle of the day, because I find that, you know, perhaps towards the, the, the afternoon, I might start to get a bit tired. Um, once you get to the evening, I'm usually a bit drunk. <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, normally the middle of the day works best for me. Okay. And, and then you mentioned Scrivener there as well, uh, which very popular writing software. Do you use anything for plotting or do you just use the cards within Scrivener for that? Um, usually just perhaps a bit of paper or, or, or a notepad file I'll just use for, for jotting down general ideas. And once I've got, you know, an A4 of just brainstorming, um, I tend to write out, um, a synopsis then, or, you know, a, a very, very weak, just this happens, then that happens, then that happens. Um, I then break that down to bullet points, um, which become, which are done basically as, as Scrivener chapters, Scrivener files, this happens and this happens and this happens. Um, I'll also make sure I've got my act structure there as well. So I know I've got a beginning, I've got a middle and I've got an end. I always try and have a twist in the middle as well, a big midpoint that, that changes everything, um, and makes things far more dramatic as well. And I know what my twist or ending is going to be at the end. Um, and I, I kind of fill it out generally kind of reaching the middle, if that makes sense. So I know the beginning, I know the end, I know what the middle is and the beginning is is filled out towards the middle and the end is worked backwards towards the middle as well um because you know i found that for me the tricky part of the book is it's not the middle because i've that's one of the things i designed most carefully but that bit between the middle and the end knowing how you get from there to the end i've generally found not the middle of the book the trickiest but the, the second half getting from there to the end is, is usually trickiest for me so I, I i i personally have to plan very carefully before i start writing and you said right at the beginning of the interview that you you write um, 
sort of action. You're very direct with your writing. You just get mm. on with it. So I, I'm guessing that you don't do a lot of kind of police procedure and, and all of this sort of research that's involved in some of these books. Well, I do. Yeah. I mean, when I say about writing action, I mean it in the, the kind of the, the, the structural sense rather than, you know, explosions and, and gunfights and things. It's um, it, things happen um, all the time. That's, that's, that's kind of what I meant by by action. It, it, there's always there's, there's plot action. There's always things happening. So, yeah, the, the Night in Culverhouse ones do get quite um, procedural, certainly more so as it's gone on. And I've I've known more about the procedure and been able to show off by putting it in the books. <laughs> Um, but the procedure always has a plot purpose. It's not there just to pad out a page. Um, so, for example, the you know, I mentioned quite a lot about the, the police and crime commissioners, the elected politicians who are effectively in charge of each county's police force. And it's not just put it in just to say to people from around the world, hey, this is how it works over here. Isn't this nice? It's the, the police and crime commissioner in my series is an antagonist. He is cons- he's constantly getting in the way. He doesn't like the way that that team do things. He's constantly trying to change things. And they're, 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 they're always fighting against that and fighting for their existence, I suppose, within this police structure. So, yeah, anytime I, I go into the procedural side of things, there's always a reason for it. And quite often the procedure and the systems and the way things need to be done acts as the antagonist quite often in the story um for example in in rough justice the, the fourth one in the series um the premise is that somebody is going around murdering pedophiles and you've got obviously most of the team are keen to catch this killer and you've got dci jack culverhouse who's the senior investigating officer in charge of the case is saying he's, he's quite an old school kind of guy and he just says well why stop him this person's doing our job for us He's catching people and getting rid of them for us. And of course, you know, the system and, uh, and the police doesn't really account for, for views like that these days. So he finds himself up against it in many ways. The team find themselves up against it and not having their, uh, their main man in charge. Um, and yeah, I, I always make sure that if I go into detail with the procedure and things, it, it's for a reason. It, it drives the plot in some way. And where do you get your information from to make sure that you're getting those procedures correct? Um, well, I speak to a lot of police officers, both um, serving and retired, um, you know, to find out how things were done. Because, as I say, Jack Culverhouse, he's a bit of a throwback to the past. He likes he likes the way things were when he joined the police rather than the way they are now. Um, so, yeah, I, I speak to a lot of officers. I've, I've been out with, um, with the police as well and seen how things work on the front line. And sometimes, yes, you do need to know how things really work and then ignore it because story does have to win out i mean you can write books that are incredibly realistic but real policing is actually quite tedious mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you know a, a murder case will have dozens if not hundreds of people working on it uh, from uniform pcs you know putting notes on a system and it's, it's a real it's a real team effort you don't really get that um thing that you get on tv and books which is a small team working you know all hours of the day um going out and arresting people themselves and, and all of the rest of it it it's real policing is much more of a big wide-ranging system so i do quite often have to actually ignore um some of the procedure or some of the way things are because otherwise the books would be really really dry and boring and that access to the police has that come since everybody knows who you are or was it as easy to get when people didn't know who you were um, no, it's still not easy at all. Um, when I've been out with them, it's been through a, a publicly 
accessible um, way of doing it. They they offer these these ride along schemes where you go along and you kind of shadow an officer for the day, and anyone can do that. Um, I you know not being critical of the police, but I have found it very difficult to to get access to information. And to be honest, that's not surprising. You know, I'm not after everyday policing um, information. Um, you know, I'm talking about the way that they catch murderers and rapists. So you know, of course, they're not just going <laughs> to mm. not just going to let me come along and and watch and and find out. Um, and yeah, you know, my my local force have got. Um, have got bigger things to be dealing with. Uh, they, you know, they've just recently been um, been announced as the the worst performing force in the country. Actually, oh, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> in in Ofsted terms, they're in they're in special measures. So I, I don't blame them for having um, other things to do than than have me sitting in the office saying, "What does this button do?" So, That's uh, fair enough, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, one one of the things I'm always very interested to to delve into with very successful authors is whether there was a point of ignition. Um, many self-published authors will feel that they're they're pushing against a closed door a lot of the time. And then it seems that things turn. People start to know who you are. The sales start to come in. The, the calls mm. for podcast interviews and, and magazine features come in. W- was there a point of ignition that you could isolate in your career? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there was always something kind of growing and bubbling. But, yeah, for me, it was when I wrote Her Last Tomorrow. That was when everything completely, completely changed. Um the book had been sitting in a drawer for, for months unfinished because everyone says to me to write in the series and generally that's good advice. But, you know, this time things only worked when I ignored that advice. And that's that's something worth doing as well. Sometimes going off and doing things your own way and, and breaking the rules can sometimes get you noticed. Um, and, yeah, that, that book uh, I put out because I'd started looking into Facebook advertising and because I'd been looking at the business side of things. And I realized that the book had an extremely marketable hook and a very, very um, grabby, if you like, concept to it. And once I started marketing that, um, that's when things really took off. And from almost the the day it was out, the the sales were rolling in and the Facebook adverts were doubling, trebling their money every day. Um, So I kept ramping that up. And of course, word of mouth got out as well. And that, for me, was when things really changed. That was December 2015. And I think you were, were you, were you the first cohort of Mark Dawson's Facebook ads uh, group? I think so, yeah. Yeah, certainly quite early. I think uh, I started doing that, I think, summer 2015 or, or perhaps sort of early autumn. Now, again, a lot of indie authors have heard about Facebook ads. I, you know, I've been through, I think I was second cohort of Mark Dawson's course. And what mm. you tend to do is you, you have a little bit of punditry on a on an ad and try a few different designs and you're under acquitted and you start to bulk at that stage because you've not made your money mm. back. And I think that's a typical experience of Facebook, but you really ramped it up and, and found some speed with it, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, I mean, what works changes. Um, of course, in the early days of Facebook ads, there were so new, so few people were doing it. It was easy to have success. It's the same with anything. The more people do it, the harder it gets. That doesn't mean you're less likely to be successful. All it means is you've got to kind of adapt your way of thinking about it. For example, now, you know, a lot of people run adverts that look the same. And you've got to think outside the box and think Facebook. People aren't on there because they want to buy a book. If you put a picture of your book up there saying, please buy this, the answer is going to be no, because people are on there because they want to find out what their friends are doing. They want to look at cat videos. They want to find out what their sister-in-law had for lunch or or whatever. Um, So you've got to kind of break through that. And I think for me, the adverts that have been most successful are the ones that haven't looked like adverts. If it looks like something your friend has posted, 
then people are going to stop. And images do catch people's eyes. Images with with other people in them catch people's eyes. So, you know, look at the, the psychology behind buying as well. Look at TV adverts. Look at billboard adverts as well. Um, when you're driving around and you see billboards at the side of the road, think, why would that advert work or not work? What catches my eye about it? What makes me stop and see it? Um, because, you know, these advertising experts know what they're talking about. And think, how can I then apply that to a Facebook advert? Why are people on Facebook? You know, when I'm scrolling through Facebook, what makes me stop and look at something? It's not because somebody's telling me to buy something. If it's an obvious advert, I'm just going to scroll on. So it's a case of thinking outside the box. And the course is is fantastic for learning how to put Facebook adverts together, the systems behind it, the reporting, integrating everything with MailChimp. Um, but, yeah, you can't kind of expect to just, you know, put up an advert that looks like an advert and, and make it work. It's about thinking outside the box and, and looking at the psychology behind it. And if I think back to your success on Facebook, from my point of view as a, as a recipient of your ads, um, it was that wonderful image of the hand over the, the girl's mouth and the, and the mm. frightened eyes. I mean, how how fair is it to say that, you know, virtually that book was sold from that one ad? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, there were there were three um, three that I used mainly. The first one was um, a picture of a, a kid's uh, tricycle knocked over at the side of a road, as if it's just been abandoned. Um, which again makes people scrolling through. You see that and you think, what the hell is this all about? It doesn't look like an advert, um, but you're trying to work out what the photo means. And that's that's the first thing is to, is to catch people's eyes. See, I had that one. I had um, the one of a there was one of a, a girl just standing there with with straggly hair. It was a black background, black and white photo of her head and shoulders. Um, and yeah, another one of a, a young girl with a a man's hand clamped over her mouth. Um, so yeah, those. As you're scrolling through, you will see that picture and you'll think, Christ, what, what's this all about? And the first thing you need to do with a Facebook advert is stop someone scrolling. Um, if they're going to scroll past that, if they're going to think it's an advert or something that's not relevant to them or something that's not interesting, they're going to carry on. And the picture is the first thing they're going to see. After that, they're going to read the first line of the text. You know, if there's too much text there, they're going to go, oh, that's not interesting either. So it's all about how you browse facebook and what stops you at certain points and where your eyes go and you know think about how you browse facebook yourself what makes you stop and look at something what gets your attention next time you click on something or uh, interact with something on facebook think why did i interact with it in that way what you know what got my attention what made me do something here and you know using that reverse psychology you can apply that to your adverts as well and think okay well how can i make an advert that has those things apply to it can i ask you where did you get that great picture from which which stock photo site did you get it from or was it made up because it's a great picture uh shutterstock i think really? um yeah I'd, I'd have to i'd have to have a look but I've, I've used a few different um sort of image repositories and things i subscribe to a few of them so yeah it's um yeah i'm not great with graphic design and, and what have you so yeah it would, it would have been a, a stock image that i would have found straight off the shelf you know no kind of photoshop work on it I don't think so. Sometimes I I do do some, um, but yeah, nothing nothing too major. But yeah, normally it's just a case of, of buying an image from a from an image repository. And because that advert was so successful, then I think you were ca- were you capturing leads rather than going straight for the sale from that. Um, no, that was going straight for the sale. That went straight through to the the Amazon product page. Oh wow! Straight to Amazon, not even a landing yeah. page. No, no, straight to Amazon. Yeah, well, that's that's quite yeah. phenomenal, isn't it? I mean that that 
conversion process to go, you know, from that image and text straight to a buy. That's that's you must have had a pretty strong, pretty strong words somewhere along the line. Yeah, I mean, it it included the main hook of the book, which was could you murder your wife to save your daughter, which obviously is going to stop most people in their tracks anyway. Um, and there are other things that I used in the advert, uh, mentioning that it was a limited time price offer, mentioning the price there as well, because um, one of the things people do is they try and get as many people to click as possible. And that's not always the best thing, because a lot of those people aren't going to be relevant. So what I was trying to do is weed out people who were going to get to the Amazon product page and then not buy, because that clicks cost me money. I only want to be paying for clicks that are going to be likely to get me sales. And, you know, mentioning the price, because um, some people might get to Amazon and go, well, that's too expensive or that's too cheap. I'm not going to buy it. Uh, mentioning the fact that it's had fantastic reviews and, and this, that and the other. So by the time they go through to Amazon, they've already got a pretty clear idea in their mind that they're probably going to want to buy that book. And what was the price when you were selling it through that Facebook ad? Uh, I think it was two pounds ninety five at first. I think oh, right. So it was it was a, yeah. it was a good price too. Uh, in that you're you know you're keeping a decent amount of your seventy percent, aren't you? You know. You- yeah, yeah. I mean that that worked quite well. I've I played around with pricing quite a lot, um, and what works sometimes doesn't work at other times. It's a case of just adjusting and, and testing and um, and playing around with things really. So yeah, I'm I'm constantly working with with price and with you know, various different things. I'm even books that have been out for four or five years i'm i'm still tweaking things in terms of the way they're sold so for many people her last tomorrow was your first book as you so painfully <laughs> say to us which is fine because the ones before it weren't very good so I'm, <laughs> I'm i'm happy to to let them have that one but then you see that presents you with a dilemma doesn't it because number one they're immediately going to look at your back catalog and then you know that might not be as strong but secondly mm-hmm. there's that immediate expect- expectation for book number two from you which is the follow-up yeah. which puts an immense amount of pressure on you um yes and no yeah i mean, I, I never really feel pressure which is probably a good thing sometimes um and yet yeah the follow-up in terms of the second psychological thriller that came out in um february that was the um, one of the kindle first choices and um, when once thomas and mercer bought her last tomorrow and and only the truth and yeah that did phenomenally well in terms of the sales and the downloads and, and what have you um quite a different book from her last tomorrow technically still a psychological thriller but a very very different protagonist um definitely an anti-hero um which you know i understand a lot of people aren't uh, aren't keen on but um yeah it's, you know generally speaking is is very popular and um yeah i mean the reviews have been have been very good really they've you know there are some some negative ones of course as there are with any book but um yeah the majority have been overwhelmingly positive um the third and fourth um psychological so this is the third one i've, I've just finished and, and will be out shortly um they are very much um closer i suppose in in spirit to her last tomorrow in that they're they're more domestic psychological thrillers um with with female leads um with things very much happening in the domestic setting which is um where the, the perhaps was a bit of a departure for for only the truth so now we're into standalones after you know two two series with eight a total of eight books in them how, how are you finding the, the difference and is it working better with well it obviously is working better with the standalones isn't it but how's it working for you writing standalones uh, yeah, it's working well. I mean, I'm, I'm still writing the series as well. I think um, Night in Culver House series has now got uh, 
six books in it, I think, and not uh, Kempston Hardwick's got four. So yeah, I've got got ten in the series now, um, and I'm still writing in those series as well, and I've got ideas for other series too. So it's um, yeah, I normally do one or two psychological thrillers a year, and uh, and and still sticks my series too. So it's it's a balancing act, really. It's not not a case of moving into um, moving into standalones, but but trying to do it all. And somehow finding the time. Yeah. And with her last tomorrow, um, you've had to, to flesh that out to make it meet you. How long was it originally and, and what is it now? Um, it was originally about 50,000. Um, and when Thomas and Mercer bought it, they, they were keen that it would be closer to what they call commercial length, which is 80,000. Um, of course, commercial length isn't a concept that exists anymore but mm. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't point that out to them too loudly <laughs> but um you know spine width isn't a thing with um with digital books um and you know i think i've proven time and time again by not having a single book other than those that went over fifty five thousand, um and that you know they've all sold like hotcakes i think i've i've, I've proven that um you know that length is is irrelevant when it comes to books um but yeah i padded it out um, well, not padded it out. But I mean, <laughs> that's probably the wrong, say. wrong words Don't to put use that on there. The blurb, will you, on the no, Facebook uh, um, <laughs> it, it, it was it was more fleshed, I think, in terms of um, rather than just being from his point of view, it was from the wife's point of view as well. So there, there were there were two different um, two different viewpoints there, um, and certain things did change in the plot as well. So it wasn't a case of just kind of padding out the pages, but Adding depth, I think, is probably the better way of putting it. So, yeah, you had you had the whole story from the wife's point of view too. So it, it made her um, an unreliable narrator. It made him an unreliable narrator, and it was quite good fun playing around with it as well because you only had his point of view. You only knew things through one pair of eyes. But of course, if you ask two people to tell you, you know, to pick any incident where two people were at that place at that time, ask them both to tell you what happened. They will both tell you essentially the same thing but in different ways and what someone will remember something the other person won't and vice versa and being able to play around with that from a a psychological point of view was really really interesting because you can then have them both throwing doubt on each other's stories um they're both going through the same experience but feeling very different things and feeling them at different times and having a different perception of what's going on even though the same thing is happening to both of them you're you're hearing it told in different ways and in a psychological thriller having that kind of uncertainty in your main characters is um is quite vital really this is just a sideline but do you watch the affair on tv because they use that uh, on tv really well um, to tell stories from different points of view I don't know, but I've had it to my list, definitely. Yeah, it's yeah. If you're writing in that style, yeah, it's it's amazing TV the way they do it, even down yeah. to the way that you know a woman might be dressed from a man's point of view and from a woman's point of view. They yeah. it's the same story but changes. It's exactly what you're saying there, but in TV terms. So it uh, yeah, it may be interesting to the way they tell that story. Um, yeah, I mean, even things like Broadchurch. Each time you you keep changing who you think's done it and why, and you realise you can't trust any of the characters, and they've all got their secrets, and perhaps in some way they're all involved or all slightly guilty, and that's that's something as well that I like to make sure I weave into all of my psychological thrillers is that that there is nobody who is completely innocent. There's always one person who did it in inverted commas, and who is the um, you know, who, who is the person who did it. But you know nobody is completely infallible, and everybody has a certain amount of guilt and 
it's a butterfly effect in, in practice. You know, we all do things that we don't perhaps think about and we don't pay much attention to, or we have certain personality traits that perhaps lead to things happening. And, um, yeah, I like to bring all those things together. It's been inspiring to watch your amazing success from the sidelines, <laughs> you know, over the past um, year, or, year or so. But also, you know, to hear how long you've been at it and the work that that's taken as well. What, what would what would super successful Adam Croft say to Adam Croft, who was writing that first book, you know, seven or so years ago? What what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? Um, I wish wish I'd known it all sooner. To be honest with you, I wish I'd got into that business mindset a bit earlier i wish that i'd um taken the plunge in terms of paying out for good covers paying out for good editors taking it more seriously and putting the time in because yeah it's it's going to be scary and you're going to think yeah I, i could be doing all this for nothing but the simple fact of the matter is that if you do it properly and if you do it for long enough and you keep doing it and you keep putting books out there and you're getting a good professional product out there then people will sit up and take notice. You've just become a father. My congratulations on that. Thank you. Another I'm amazed adventure. he's kept quiet for an hour. That's well, I hadn't <laughs> heard anything in the background. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> but you must feel like you're on top of the world at the moment. Yeah, 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 yeah I do. Um, but as I said, in many ways, I, I just don't feel pressure. Um, I just want to keep moving on and, and doing the next thing. I mean, last month I was simultaneously store-wide number one on uk and us amazon and you know it was, it was the best-selling book in the world for for a good few days and it's bizarre but my first thought was excellent fine where do i go now what's next how do i how do i build on this and that's constantly what i'm doing you know i'm i've got a a long list of things that I want to do through my career. You know, it started with write the first book and it ends with be the best-selling author of all time. And there are certain markers and checklists on the way and I'm just I'm just ticking things off and, and moving onwards and upwards. That's, um, yeah, that's my way of thinking about it. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.